today on the way up show but then came tile into fashion what a horrible choice that was for countertops am i right i mean it was so practical because everyone knows how fun it is to clean red wine out of grout or tomato sauce or heck even toothpaste from your bathroom tile grout that was just a stupid trend from the 80s that i hope we leave behind and never revisit unlike acid washed jeans and fluorescent pocketed t-shirts You're listening to The Way Up Show, a podcast for anyone who thinks the housing market is broken and we can do something about it. My name is Jonathan Monk, but most folks just call me Monk. I'm the founder of Maslow, a company that makes the world's best backyard office studio. We believe in home ownership for all. Here, I'm talking about the history, design, technology, economics, culture, and the future of the housing industry and the power of home ownership to change lives. Good morning and welcome to the most honest and hopeful housing industry show out there. In today's show, I'm going to talk about the retail giant that revolutionized every aspect of the way we buy, that forever changed entire markets, the unstoppable force in retail. Of course, we're talking about Sears, the Sears Roebuck and Company Sears, the Sears Catalog one, the Sears Tower one, the most valuable retailer in the world for a long time, that one. Sears, the innovators, Sears, the leaders, with loyal customers, incredible reach, So much reach, it drastically impacted even the housing industry. What, you don't recognize this Sears? Well, well, maybe this helps. This is the Sears that created the Craftsman brand for tools, Kenmore appliances, diehard batteries, Land's End clothing. You know these brands. How about the Discover card? Yes, those were all Sears brands. How about Allstate Insurance? Yes, in good hands. That Allstate. Did you know that Allstate started as a Sears brand for tires, spark plugs, batteries, and a bunch of other automotive accessories? And yes, even an Allstate branded car in 1952? Forget about that Amazon phone or the Apple car. Sears audaciously and in reality pulled stuff like that off. If you were to ask me to rank the most innovative companies in the history of the United States, I'd have to put Sears in the top five for sure. And probably I'd put them higher than Amazon. They really were incredible in their day. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Well, actually, today's show is, I guess, more like a memorial service for Sears, if you want to think about it that way. It's a sad decline, right? Actually, for many and maybe most listeners, Sears was always a mess during their lifetime. It was definitely always a mess during most of my lifetime, but it wasn't always this way. I have gained a lot of respect for Sears and really what they used to be, which is a giant of industry, a true innovator, a market mover. And man, they could execute with dominance. Today, we're going to, I guess, honor what Sears once was. What does any of this have to do with the housing industry, you might ask? Well, let's talk about 
when the business was even more innovative than just tools or housewares or appliances or insurance or clothing or even Sears branded cars. And that is this little disgust division inside the business called Sears Modern Home that launched in 1908. Sears Modern Home were homes fully designed and available for purchase as a kit from the Sears catalog. I'm talking full-size, multi-story, architectural homes, complete with all the materials to build the house, pre-cut lumber, finishes, wiring, fixtures, everything, all measured and ready to go, shipped in a couple of railway cars for you to pick up and build your own home from scratch at a much lower cost and much faster than the traditional route at the time. You didn't need to hire an architect. You didn't need to find a friend. You didn't need to find a sawmill to cut everything for you. You didn't need to be a professional. You could just find the house in the Sears catalog, and while you're buying a new pair of work gloves or a lamp, you can order a house, pick out all your paint colors, and in a few weeks, all the materials arrive. You can then hire a professional crew to build it for you, or you can do it yourself. And a lot of people did build it themselves with the help of family or neighbors even. They kind of rally the neighborhood around to build these houses. Now, some technologies that had been recently invented really accelerated this program. The invention of asphalt shingles, for example, and drywall, and what's called, or at least what was called at the time, balloon-style two-by-four framing, that all made this much more possible and much easier to do. And so Sears really took advantage of some of these new technologies to launch this product line. And it isn't just a handful of homes that they sold, right, when they were doing this. We're talking about hundreds of different home designs that they offered. At its peak, Sears offered 447 different designs to choose from, everything from small cottages and guest homes like mother-in-law style apartment or backyard kind of small homes, to multi-story, ornate, beautiful architectural homes with art glass and French doors and kind of really fancy for the time. You'd get all the materials to build it and a nice, specific instruction manual with the order. And those instruction manuals were very detailed and also gave strict instructions to follow them exactly so there wouldn't be any waste and no need for extra work. Sears even warned customers to closely follow instructions because they didn't ship the kit with very many extra materials, just enough. Now, I've gone through some of these designs. There's obviously hundreds of them that are cataloged and archived on the Sears website. It's really kind of fascinating and a rabbit hole you can jump into. But let me just take one, for example, read the ad out to you as if, so kind of put yourself in the position of someone in the early 1900s living out West, maybe you're living in the Midwest, working, you know, in some factory somewhere and you want to kind of build your dream home and you get the Sears catalog in 1908. And this is what you see. Modern home number 167. Okay. Cost on this one is $753 in 1908. That's the cost of all of these materials and the design. They calculate an additional $1,500 for labor, cement, brick, and plaster. So all in, you know, you're a little over $2,000 for all the parts. Or in today's money, that's $44,000. Plus, call it maybe 
30% for the land you're going to put it on, a bit more for plumbing and electrical to be run. So maybe all in, in today's money, you're talking about $65,000 for this house. Yes. And that's $65,000 in today's money for a Victorian style, 1500 to 2000 square foot home, two stories. It's got a living room, dining room, kitchen, reception hall on the main floor, three bedrooms and a bathroom up top. And one of the bedrooms has this little kind of turret, a basement in the bottom for a furnace and I assume like coal storage and cold food storage. There's a porch out in the front and a stoop out in the back. It's decent living, this. I mean, especially for 1908. Now, here's the description of the house in the catalog itself. I'll read that out to you. Quote, For $753, we will furnish all the material to build this eight-room house, consisting of millwork, flooring, ceiling, siding, furnishing, lumber, building paper, I don't know what that is, building paper, pipe, gutter, sash weights, hardware, painting materials, lumber, lath, and shingles. No extras, all in caps, as we guarantee enough material at the above price to build this exact house according to our plans. And then it goes on to describe the house to you. So, you know, these these catalogs would come with a drawing, like an architectural detailed drawing of the exterior of the house and sort of like a three-quarter view. So you get a good sense of what the house looks like. And there's, you know, floor plans actually drawn on the ad itself too. So you can see kind of the layout. You can see what the exterior looks like. But then it goes on to describe it in a little bit more detail. So, you know, just imagine you and your wife or you and your husband are sitting down and you're reading this out to the other partner about this house that you're dreaming about getting and maybe saving up enough money to build one. This is what it says. A well-proportioned house, which affords a great deal of room at a low cost. Large front porch, 21 feet 6 inches long by 8 feet wide, with colonial columns. Bay window in the dining room and parlor. An octagon tower on the second floor, making it suitable for a corner lot. Crystal-leaded front window in the parlor. Color-leaded art glass sash for the wall, with marginal light attic sash. Every room in the house is perfectly lighted and well-ventilated by large windows. The reception hall contains an open staircase with a cased opening between it and the parlor and another eased opening leading to the dining room. A door also opens from the reception hall directly into the kitchen. Inside cellar stairs directly under the main stairs and also an outside stairway under the rear porch. When reaching the second floor landing, you are within a very few feet of the entrance to the three bedrooms or bathroom. By this, you will notice there are no waste spaces whatsoever. I think that's funny how they kind of talk about, well, it's actually kind of small up there, maybe not a lot of extra space. They kind of position this as, you will notice there's no waste space whatsoever, which, you know, by today's standards, we would go in there and probably say, man, this feels cramped. But they would say, we're not wasting your square footage by having a hallway leading from place to place uh, going on here. Dublin front door, three by seven feet, glazed with a bevel plate glass. Interior yellow pine doors for both first and second floor with clear yellow pine trim, such as casing, baseboard, and molding. Clear yellow pine flooring for both floors and porches. Painted two coats outside, color to suit. Varnish and wood filler for the two coats of interior finish. Built on a concrete block foundation, frame construction sided with narrow bevel cypress edge siding, and has a cedar shingle roof. 
excavated basement under the entire house, seven feet from the floor to joists with cement floor. First floor, nine feet from the floor to the ceiling. Second floor, eight feet from the floor to the ceiling. This house can be built on a lot 28 feet wide. Sears, Roebuck, and Company, Chicago, Illinois. Quality guaranteed. Sophisticated yet different without making a huge fuss about it. Rich, dark brown, calfskin leather. Matching linen vamp. Men's hole in half sizes, 7 through 13. Price $135. That's not too so that's what it reminds me of a little bit. The J. Peterman catalog is actually a real thing. And I think it kind of has a little bit of that vibe, actually. These kind of incomplete sentences with descriptors going in there. But the J. Peterman catalog actually used to get them after watching Seinfeld and read the totally unique product descriptions. The products don't even have images. I mean, it's actually a lot like the Sears catalog because the J. Peterman catalog just had like hand-painted watercolors of the clothes. I think probably it's a requirement that you memorize the product descriptions in the J. Peterman catalog in order to wear and buy the product. I'm pretty sure. J. Peterman is probably the most interesting mail-order catalog business still around since we're on the topic. But anyway, the way Sears pulled this off with this house was they had a relationship with dozens of big lumber mills, sawmills, around the country. So those sawmills would cut the wood based on the design of the house that the customer had ordered, and they would assemble all the other materials together to make them ready for shipment. And as was the case with many mills at the time, a lot of them were located along the rail lines, which, as you can imagine, due to their catalog business, Sears had great leverage there and good relationships with the railway companies at the time. And that made for an efficient ordering, manufacturing, and shipping operation, which is why these kit homes could be delivered so quickly. I mean, we're talking about from the time of order to the time of delivery to the customer under a month in most cases. A couple of weeks, two to three weeks on average. The customer would just need to show up. I mean, we're talking 1908, so probably not a truck or or anything. It'd probably be you know, a wagon pulled by a couple of donkeys and they'd make 10 trips or something to unload the rail car. But that's literally all they had to do. And then they bring the materials to the lot and they're off to building. All in all, you could buy a Sears kit house for 32 years from between 1908 to 1940. That's quite a long period of time, actually. Sears offered financing along the way as well. So initially they didn't. Then they launched financing that allowed the customers to really have a one-stop shop to buy these houses. You could pay your mortgage to Sears, and that allowed you know for more customers to do it really easily. They offered great terms on those loans, but that sort of became the downfall eventually of the Sears modern home problem. What happened was during the Depression, right? So obviously they offered these for sale during that period of time. It was good for a lot of people for a while because it was one of the most affordable ways to be able to build your own home. But eventually a lot of people lost their jobs, lost their land. A lot of people couldn't pay those mortgages that Sears was financing. And Sears ended up foreclosing on a bunch of their own customers, which, you know, of course, soured a lot of people on the company. Not the best. And that kind of became the demise of the Sears modern home. 
But, you know, all in all, more than 70,000 Sears modern homes were built. And historians estimate that 70% of those homes are still standing today. In fact, there's this little movement around the country right now to find and catalog, pun intended, absolutely, these homes. A lot of people that live in them have no idea. So people go out and sort of look around and they memorize, you know, all of these different architectural designs and they say, hey, you're living in, you know, model number 422. And uh, did you know that you had a Sears home? The reason why a lot of these homes today are not really recognized and known as Sears homes that people are living in is because it obviously over time gained a little bit of a negative connotation that I live in a house built by Sears, which, you know, if you if you grew up in the 70s or 80s or 90s, it became less and less, you know, desirable to be able to say that. And so that was kind of silently dropped from the history books. But you could go into a house and look at some of the joists and there'd be stamps on those joists that would say, you know, Sears, Roebuck and Company. So there's ways to find out and verify that. So kind of interesting. But the fact that Sears saw this opportunity to help more people become homeowners and they innovated their way to bring that vision to life, to reality, is just incredible. I mean, big props. It's amazing. Worth mentioning. But, you know, here's the thing I'm caught up in and what I want to spend some time delving into in a second, and that is this. What has made the cost of home building skyrocket so much? You'll remember we talked about $65,000, you know, rough estimate to build a home on your own lot in today's dollars. One of these Sears kit homes. So what in the world has happened to make the house cost so much? I mean, today your average cost is $350,000 or more on average in America. So let's talk about that in a second. Once in a while, it's nice to stand up from your desk, crack your knuckles, and wander over to the communal snack area of the office when you've worked through lunch and you try to find a little snack to satiate a hankering for crunchy glucose when you peek into the fridge and find a takeout container with minestrone inside and a little post-it note on there that reads, up for grabs. So you warm it up and sit for a few minutes and do a bit of mindless scrolling so your mind can just relax in a segment I call The Way Sideways. Can we just talk a little bit more about how Sears fell to pieces? I mean, how does this happen? Can anyone imagine what it would take for Amazon to go bankrupt? A lot of people point to Amazon as the reason Sears ate the dust, but it really was just one more nail in an already full and almost nailed shut coffin. But at one point, it just seemed impossible that Sears would ever be dethroned. Sears was so clever and ruthless in the catalog business that they even thought to make their catalogs just a little bit smaller, shorter and narrower than the competitor Montgomery Ward catalog. So when the catalogs were stacked up on people's side and coffee tables, guess which one was always on top? Genius. In 1908, 80% of American households got the Sears catalog. They dominated every category, category after category. Then they launched huge department stores, and dominated that too. In 1969, Sears' sales were 1% of the entire U.S. economy. They were the biggest retailer in the world. Now, Sears struggled to compete later on with the likes of Walmart, who focused on value, assortment, 
and low prices. And then, of course, Amazon came along with e-commerce, short shipping times, and also focused on low prices and also focused on assortment. So here you have Sears, not really good e-commerce. They did work on assortment, but they didn't really work on low prices. And they have these, you know, big competitive pressures and Sears just couldn't keep up. So in response, they bought another struggling retailer, Kmart, in 2005, which was a disaster because what's better than one struggling retailer than two to drag you down into your downward spiral? It did drag them down faster into their downward spiral is what happened. They were the number one retailer in America from 1950 to 1990, and then Walmart took it over. In 2000, they dropped to number three. By 2010, they were number 19. And today, if you haven't been in a Sears store lately, that's both the reason they are pretty much gone, thanks a lot, and also they are pretty much gone, so there are no more stores for you to visit anyway. In case you're wondering, you could buy the company Sears today, the entire company, for $1.4 million. Oh, and by the way, they'll throw in Kmart for free. There are now 21 full-line Sears stores still left in the U.S. and a couple in Puerto Rico. Many takers. Now, you got to listen to this. I think my generation grew up with Sears. And Amazon is worth 20% more than Sears is worth in market capitalization. How do you view that phenomenon that Amazon today is worth more than Sears? Investors are focused on the future. Amazon has growth potential that Sears doesn't. A couple of geeks who sketched out some software could destroy Sears Roebuck. That's the beauty of technology and the microprocessor. We've never seen anything like it. That's from a 60 Minutes clip from 1997, just after Amazon goes public. The host is just totally incredulous at this, of course. A couple of geeks who sketched out some software could destroy Sears Roebuck. Yes, a couple of geeks. If you want to know what happened, how could this happen? Shall I cue up Professor Clay Christensen on The Innovator's Dilemma? Read or listen. Or said quickly, how did Sears end up bankrupt? I can give you the right answer by quoting Hemingway. He says, quote, two ways, gradually, then suddenly. Both Amazon and Sears focused on being the everything store, but Amazon won on customer experience and price. Walmart won on price and assortment and Sears had no more capital to work on innovation. All companies have limited lifespans, of course. Even Jeff Bezos has talked about this openly. He said in an all-hands employee meeting at one point, I predict one day Amazon will go bankrupt. If you look at large companies, their lifespans tends to be 30-plus years, not 100-plus years, close quote. So he understands, you know, it's just like any living organism. Eventually, it will die. So that's how it went quite literally, down. And this has been The Way Sideways. So, you know, jumping back in here, the price of houses has far outpaced inflation. Can we get to the bottom of why this is? The cost of houses has risen way, way faster than inflation. So, you know, what's going on? There is, of course, the dearth of housing supply to the amount of 5 million homes in America right now. Yikes. There's the fact that big corporations are now buying huge quantities of housing supply for rental units. There's, of course, the vacation rental industry overall. 
those things also drive up prices as supply is limited for people to actually buy their houses. But the thing I want to focus on today, and, and by the way, those are real factors, and we should talk about that in a future episode, but the thing I want to talk about today is just the hard costs. How much has that equation changed? The cost to actually build a house. What are the ingredients? How does the cost break out? Well, I've done some research. For a home, you basically have five ingredients. There's the land that it sits on and the related prep of that land. And of course, land is one of those few ingredients here that is completely limited. It's a limited resource. So no surprise that the costs of land go up, especially as populations move around and our overall population in America is growing or has been growing. Second is the size of the house, meaning the costs grow faster when the size goes up. So it's not just a linear expense. You need to have sometimes fancier materials. You need to have different and better engineering or maybe even you know different methods of construction that might use more materials to pull off a specific footprint of design. So that's a consideration. The third is, of course, just the cost of the materials, right? Materials, as you know, are at historical highs, or at least they're often talked about as being at historical highs. You have the labor, right? We hear over and over again how there's labor shortages in America. So labor costs are going up because, you know, it's hard to find a good electrician nowadays or a good welder nowadays, and those trades now tend to pay very well. You have then, you know, external fees, right? That's your builders, your architects, your permits, your plans, your realtors, your closing costs, you know, all these other things that are built in. So those are sort of the main ingredients that we're talking about here. When we talk about materials, there are really two categories of materials. So let's talk about just the materials piece, the actual stuff that goes into building a house. There's a couple categories here. The first is what I call fungible materials or also called invariable cost. Meaning a two by four is the same two by four and costs the same amount whether you put that two by four, you know, in in a mansion or in a backyard garden shed. It doesn't really matter whether it's in a five million dollar structure or a five thousand dollar structure. You're going to pay the same amount for that two by four, and that's true for you know some materials like concrete, drywall, wiring, plumbing, you know, a few other mainstays. The second category of materials is finishing materials. Now, finishing costs are hugely variable, right? You can put very bare bones and basic finishes in your house, and you can put very expensive finishes in your house. One of the things that I'm seeing is I compare, you know, that Sears and Roebuck modern home design versus a home design today is that you used to have mostly invariable cost materials going into the house, lumber, bricks, concrete, you know, a lot of unfinished products. Nowadays, even, you know, drywall, vapor barrier, shingles, those are manufactured materials now, right? Those are not just plain old cut down a tree and cut it up type materials. But finishing costs are hugely variable. And, you know, if you choose to have more expensive wood for the cabinets, you know, marble versus granite versus formica or other cheap countertops, which lights you put in, the type of flooring, your roofing materials, your exterior finishes, it all adds up. So as of 2019, let me run some numbers by you, but as of 2019, this is from the National Association of Home Builders, which is pretty much the authority on 
kind of the big industry as far as costs and trends and those types of things. Here's how some of the numbers break down. You know, if you're building a house in 2019, it's the most recent data that I have access to that's complete. I don't know how often these guys put out these numbers, but this is what I have access to. So for an average house, here's how it would break down. Your lot and land, 19% of the cost. Your labor, 40% of the cost. Materials then makes up most of the rest of that with a little bit of room for related fees and overhead, stuff like that. Now, now if you want to know the biggest cost in those construction expenses by category, we can go through those two, and that I'll read in descending order. So the first and biggest category of expenses overall is your finished materials. 25% of the cost. They average you know, $75,000 at the average cost of a, of a home today. So that's your insulation, your drywall, your doors, your mirrors, your trim, your painting, your lights, cabinets, you know, carpentry, appliances, flooring, plumbing fixtures, all that stuff. So the biggest thing is these finished materials. Behind that, framing. They estimate $51,000 or so for framing. That's obviously the wood and everything. Then you have major systems and rough-ins. So major systems is, you know, your power and your plumbing and your HVAC, your gas, you know, all that stuff. 15% of the cost is is your major systems, $43,000. Exterior finishes, $14,000. So, you know, of course, your siding and all that. Foundations is 12% at $35,000. So someone's going to have to level out the ground and someone's going to have to pour a foundation or whatever the foundation is. Final steps, it's called final steps, that's the category. That's like your deck and your patio and your driveway and your landscaping and your, you know, finish paint and stuff. Uh, That's 7% of the cost, $20,000. Then there's a category called site work. That's your permits and your fees and your inspections and all those sorts of things. 6% of the cost at $18,000 per house. And then they have this other category. And that other category is things like trash removal from the from the job site and porta potties for the employees that are there. Uh, they estimate that cost to be four percent of the total cost of the of the house at eleven thousand dollars. So there's a breakdown, right? It's basically an overview of what goes into a house and how much. I was surprised that finished materials was as big a category as it is. I mean, if you think about it, what has changed between that Sears Modern Home Design house? And this run-through that I just gave you, how much has the equation changed, if at all, right? I've alluded to it already, but have they gone up? Have they gone down? What are the proportions like? For as much as we talk about the cost of lumber and the cost of steel impacting construction costs, the materials we've gotten used to in our houses, these finished materials, is at least as much a consideration. I mean, again, Lumber is lumber, and yes, lumber prices have gone up, but it is not the biggest cost in building a home, not by a long margin. We're talking about these finished materials, I think is going to be the biggest difference. For example, think about cabinets. In houses built 60 years ago, you'd be lucky to have a few cabinets under the counters and a couple on the wall. It was even fewer cabinets than that in 1908, I guarantee you. Now, we expect floor-to-ceiling cabinetry in the kitchen. How about countertops? You know, formica used to be the standard material. It was cheap, durable, could be used in 
almost any place with almost any design you could possibly want or any color. But then came tile into fashion. What a horrible choice that was for countertops, am I right? I mean, it was so practical because everyone knows how fun it is to clean red wine out of grout or tomato sauce or heck, even toothpaste from your bathroom tile grout. That was just a stupid trend from the 80s that I hope we leave behind and never revisit. Unlike acid-washed jeans and fluorescent pocketed t-shirts, scrunchies, crimped hair. I mean, that stuff, you know, we absolutely should bring back. Not a fan of the tile. Of course, then you had granite countertops. It came by storm in the early 2000s. Same goes for carpet. We want super durable carpet that never gets stained, that looks good, that, you know, never shows wear. And we have, of course, you know, manufactured wood products for hard floor surfaces and all these incredible new materials have been invented, starting with Pergo in the early and mid-90s, I think it was. Now we have tile that looks convincingly like wood and is ultra-durable. Anyway, there's many types of floating floors and cool innovations in flooring on its own. We want our big mirrors in the bathrooms with multiple sinks. We want a room just for pooping in with its own light and, importantly, fan. We want walk-in closets. We want walk-in showers with floor-to-ceiling tile. We want nice doorknobs. We want big windows. You've almost certainly walked through a house that had no lights on any of the ceilings, right? An older home? That's because you used to bring your own lights into the house in the form of lots of lamps. But houses built today, you know, all of the lighting is basically built in. Back then, the light switches would be connected to specific wall outlets, and you'd have to, you know, strategically place your floor lamps to match wherever those were, or run extension cords. Well, you know, now we want all our lighting built in, and lots of it in every single room. We want fans. And we want our lights and fans to be internet connected so we can change the, you know, warmth or coolness of those lights whenever we want. We want taller ceilings. We want multi-room heating and air conditioning in order to keep those south-facing rooms from getting too hot in the summer or the master bedroom or basement at a different temperature than the rest of the house. We want smart locks. We want three-car garages. When you look at the entire picture, it's so easy to see what things used to cost and say, geez, there must really be something messed up here because the costs are completely out of whack. I mean, that was my first reaction when running these numbers when I looked at the Sears Modern Home. The reason homes don't cost $65,000 in today's dollars like the Sears Kit Homes is really for me two reasons. And just to jump the gun on this, it is not because home builders are doing crazy markups and laughing their way to the bank. That's not really fair or accurate. I mean, for as many problems as the housing industry has, it doesn't operate on crazy margins. In 2020, the average home builder had a margin of 18%, meaning they made 18 cents on every dollar that was spent. And that's the highest that margin has been for a while. For context, those $190 Ray-Bans that you're wearing had a cost basis of more than likely way less than $25. And so Luxottica, the company who owns Ray-Bans, pockets a little more than half of the rest of that money. With the retailer, Sunglass Hut or wherever you're buying your Ray-Bans, takes the remainder. I mean, the margins in the sunglass and eyewear industry are insane. It's a similar story with clothing and furniture. So 
you know, the home building industry is not a margin play. You don't get into that industry because you're going to make amazing margins. But that's really a parochial view of the market. It used to be the case that most of the materials that went into a home were raw materials. Wood, nails, wire, plaster, concrete, bricks, you know, and so on. But today, we have more and more fabricated materials in our houses. The wood is manufactured plywood. You know, even the the walls, right? It's not just plain wood, it's manufactured plywood. And sometimes weather and water-treated plywood with, you know, chemicals to keep it from rotting. We The nice fixtures and faucets all around, the high-grade processed flooring, all the stuff we're talking about, right? Those are not raw materials. They used to be raw materials. They're no longer raw materials. So all those costs that go into the finished material line item that we were talking about, right? The 25% of the total cost of the house, they have their own cost in and of themselves. It wasn't just a mill cuts down a tree and then slices a tree into pieces that you build the house from. That was basically all of the manufacturing that took place, right? Very basic stuff. Today, the companies that make these finished materials, these are fairly sophisticated manufactured materials, right? The manufactured wood flooring isn't just white pine cut into slabs that you stain on your own. They manufacture these materials into high-grade durable goods. So those companies, you know, Pergo, for example, they have their own marketing costs. They have their own sales costs. They have their own shipping costs. They have their own company. They have their own employees, they have to stay in business too. They have their margins to protect. It's not just raw hardwood cut lumber like it used to be. We can talk about you know siding in the same way, where there used to be just bricks, some concrete, a skilled mason. Maybe you'd do you know a wood finish on the outside. Now we use manufactured products. We use vinyl siding, which is the most common type of siding still today, or we use you know some kind of wood siding, which is a manufactured weather treated wood. We have metal siding, which needs to be forged, flattened, cut, sanded, painted. You know, we have fiber cement siding, which is a composite material, and so forth. So you kind of get the picture, right? We're no longer using as many raw materials in our houses. We're using these finished materials that are made by other companies with their own cost structures and their own margins to protect. Someone has to make the modern nickel light fixtures that you want and the high-end fridge and the lighting, and the drywall, and the carpet, and the insulation, and so forth. Now multiply those margins that must be maintained from every one of those different suppliers with all of those additional costs, and the distribution you know, requirements to send all of those products to all of the different places, and all of those get built into the cost of the home. So no wonder a house costs so much more than before. We've added dozens of other middlemen who have their own business to protect and their own money to make. And all those costs get passed directly on to consumers. Are home builders trying to stick it to the people? I mean, maybe a little, but that's kind of like saying car manufacturers are sticking it to us because we're so used to power locks and adaptive cruise control and heated seats. We could never go back to driving a car without it. So now you can't even find a car without those things. Even the most basic cars out there have them. Back in the day, I remember you could buy a Saturn II like in 1999, and I have this from authority because I used to work there, you could buy a Saturn Coupe 
a two-door Saturn coupe that was so stripped down, it had only one side view mirror, no power steering, no power locks, no power seats, no power mirrors, no rear window defroster. The car had a single speaker stereo in the front. You know, the speaker was like in the middle of the dashboard and that was the only speaker it had. It was as basic as it could possibly be and still be legal. Today, the cheapest new vehicle on the market is the Chevrolet Spark. And it comes with a six-speaker Bluetooth stereo, tilt steering wheel, power windows, rear park assist, full leather interior, USB data ports, keyless entry, and a digital data system, whatever the heck that means. I assume some sort of screen that says what miles per gallon you're getting. And lots of other features. We're willing to pay for it, because can you imagine having to reach across the car and unlock the passenger side door when your friend is trying to get in? I mean, it's pretty much the same thing in the housing industry. So are home builders laughing their way to the bank? Well, the new finished home product industry is. They found a way to make a bunch of money and make what used to be considered luxury items like granite countertops into mainstream things, into expectations. Home builders, they're chuckling their way to the bank. After all, they have controlled a slow pace of home building and kept demand so high that it's more or less guaranteeing them good margins and steady growth for at least another generation. So here's the question. Will the days of the Sears kit home ever come back? Probably not. And that's both a shame and not really a shame. It's nice to have nice things and it's nice to have more efficient safer homes. But realistically, how many people could or would want to build their own homes these days? It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. Would they even be allowed to? Perhaps there will be a day when some version of these homes comes back into the market. And that's the type of innovation I'm all for. So there you have it. The Way Up Show with Monk, produced by Randy Strew of Envision Podcasting, associate writer David Monk. You can rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Way Up Show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you go to listen to your favorite shows. 